Thank you, everybody, for joining us on another episode of The Rising Warrior. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Karen Salt. Karen is a 20-plus year Navy veteran. Uh, she has a bachelor's and master's degree in psychology and counseling. She is an advanced holistic coach, uh, and she even spent 18 months serving with the Veteran Treatment Center, working directly with our homeless and addicted veterans. Um, the main reason why we have her on today is she is in the finishing process of writing her book, which is focusing coming out of hiding. So Karen, it is truly a pleasure. Uh, this is going to be a great podcast. Um, thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. Um, when we talked earlier, um, yes, this is a veteran podcast. And yes, we're going to talk about your time and service. But when we talked earlier, you mentioned a lot of good things about your your journey and your experience before the military. So um, I would love to start there. Sure. Um, so I was, uh, I'm, I'm living back in my hometown, Prescott, Arizona. I was born and raised here, spent my first 18 years here. Um, you know, I was a little girl, I was um, late 60s, uh, early 70s, and I was, I was a little girl that struggled with my gender uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, one of the first things that I said to my mom was, I hate dresses and I want to play with the boys. And um, I had an older brother and a younger brother who was born when, my older brother was about a year and a half older than me. And my younger brother was born when I was five. And I was a tomboy. Uh, this was back in the days when uh, gender issues were not issues. They weren't, you know, it was, there wasn't the awareness, there wasn't the social media, there wasn't the attention on TV. So I was just this confused little girl. And I have specific memories about um, the things I wanted to do and the things I didn't want to do. Mm. And so um, I remember the first time, like my mom told me I had to start wearing a shirt. <laughs> and I'm like, why? And she's like, because little girls wear shirts and little, and I'm like, well, that doesn't seem right. Like, why, why am I being treated differently? So I had like this real awareness that I was different because I was a girl, but I mm. kept fighting it and kept fighting it and kept fighting it. And then um, I was, I think, nine or 10 years old when I um, tried out for Little League. And so, you know, I was played with the boys. I played baseball. I played football. I just, I don't know who I thought I was, but I thought I was a boy, I guess. And so um, I tried out for Little League and the commissioner of Little League called that night and told my mom that my brother could play, but that I couldn't. Mm. And she said, why? And he said, because she's a girl and girls don't play Little League. And so I was, I was devastated, but I, um, you know, I just didn't understand it. Later on that night, this woman called, her name was Faith Blair, and her son ended up playing, or not, her grandson ended up playing in the major leagues. I don't remember his name. I always forget it. But she called that night and said, I was at the tryouts. I'm going to, I agreed to coach a team, but only if Karen could play on my team. And so I got to play Little League. And so I was this catcher at long blonde hair and I was, you know, my hair was sticking out of my, my helmet and I was this catcher and I was being um, harassed by parents on the bench in the stands who were harassing me because I was playing little league. And so they were really upset that I was doing stuff that just, they thought just the boys could do. And so um, it had a huge impact on me. 
-hmm. And um, I wanted to play. I liked playing. I was good at what I did. I felt like I could compete, but I knew I was different. And um, and so at the end of that year, uh, I started to get really deep into being a misfit. I started to drink. I started to steal booze from my dad. My dad was an alcoholic. Um, I started to just really rebel against the system. And the system back then for me was gender, gender equality. I didn't understand it that way, but you know, now looking back 300 years later, I know what was happening. And, um, and so I turned into this misfit and I learned how to be a chameleon. I learned how to adapt. I learned how to become who I needed to be, but I drank a lot. I ditched school. I barely graduated from high school, had a friend in every corner. I was just this, this girl who was really angry, really confused, and didn't know why I was so different, um, did not know that I was gay at all. Because in my hometown, I mean, even today, there's a really small population of gay people, and most of them are not visible, because mm -hmm. um, it's not really safe to be visible, or it feels like it's not safe to be visible. So, you know, that was my early childhood. When I was... Um, when I was 18 years old, I was graduating from high school, barely. Um, I was begging one teacher for a D and he gave it to me, I think because he didn't want me back the next year because I was a nightmare to be around. Whatever works. Whatever works. He gave it to me. I graduated and the Navy recruiter had contacted me and I was like, I am not joining the Navy. There is no way in hell I'm going in the Navy. So I graduated, and so he had asked me questions, you know, have you done drugs? Have you had homosexual um, tendencies? I said no to homosexual tendencies because I hadn't, but when he asked me if I'd done drugs, I said yes. And so he stopped and he said, be clean for six months and I'll contact you later. And I'm like, whatever. And so six months later, I'm working at a, at a gas station, really winning, and this guy contacts me again and he's like, have you done drugs in six months? And I said, no. And he said, how about we go down to Phoenix and we talk to some people? And I'm like, all right, whatever. So I get in this car with him, we go down to Phoenix and he takes me to MEPS. And um, for most of you, that's where we enlist in the, in the military. And by the end of that, I talked to a person, then I talked to another person, talked to another person and I was being processed in the Navy and I had no idea, oh. had no idea that I was being absolutely swindled into the Navy by the end of the day. They're like, go stand on that platform. I go stand on the platform. Some dude is standing in front of me. He's like, raise your right hand. Everybody raises their right hand. I'm like, okay, I raise my right hand and I join the Navy. Wow. And so this is October um, 83, right after um, high school and six months after high school and February of 84, I'm going in the Navy. And so that's my, that's how I ended up in the military. No desire to serve my country was really uh, very alcoholic by that point was just um, struggling, but ended up in the military. So. Wow. I, I knew recruiters yeah. were pretty shady and shitty people, but I've never heard anything. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, I've heard of a lot of shadiness. That's a higher level of shadiness. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I was, I was a young girl who really didn't have like self-control. I didn't, because I was drinking so much and, and just really pretty wild. 
I didn't have the, um, the ability to understand when somebody was like really swindling me like that. And so, you know, go talk mm. to people means go talk to some people, but you know, mm. I get home that night, my mom is sitting on the couch in a, you know, I go upstairs and she's like, what happened? And I'm like, I think I joined the Navy today. And she's like, what do you mean you think? And she's like, let me see the paperwork. And she flips through it and she's like, yeah. And so I was on the delayed entry program. I don't know if they still do that, but yeah, they did they when do. I was in. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And didn't wow. even consider getting out of it. But I, I mean, I just, I mean, I don't know. It felt like prison was coming up for me at the time. What, yeah, I'm curious what, obviously you're much removed from that experience, but what, what was, you know, that sense of being about to go to prison basically, or what felt that way at the time, why not protect yourself and get out of it? What was it that where you were like, well, this is my, this is just how it goes. You know, I think at the time, like I didn't have the wherewithal to even, like, I felt like I signed on the dotted line and right okay like there's no way out i think today's generation has a lot more awareness that there's ways to get out like you could like call yeah, somebody and say hey yeah. look i was swindled into this call you congressman or whatever right back then mm -hmm. i mean i just felt like i had you know i had signed it and that i was going and if i didn't go i probably would go to jail and mm -hmm. so i just think you know the generationally i just think the times were different and um and I, I didn't know how to get out of it. And I didn't even really try to. I just felt like I had sealed my fate, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm sure there are many people out, even if they don't get literally bamboozled like you did. Um, I'm sure there are many young men and women who get in the military under that pre pretense. So they're like, oh, my God, I signed up three months ago and I'm going to boot camp in a month. I don't think right. I can get out of this at this point. Right. Um, I'm sure that happens a lot. And, and when you're that impressionable, your brain hasn't really fully developed yet. You absolutely uh, can make rash decisions that lead you there. And you might, you might legitimately regret it. I mean, a lot of us certainly did while we were in. Yeah. Um, so, so that's not, that's neither here nor there. Um, so going into the Navy, you're sort of blind. that didn't know what you were getting into. What was it first um, before we get kind of in the later stages of you coming out? Um, or at least knowing that that's coming up for you, um, what were those first couple of years in the Navy like? Um, and specifically around what made you re-enlist the first time? So um, the first couple of years were really tough. Hmm. Um, it was 1984. They were just integrating women on board ships. And so hmm. um, I got to my first, I, I, was, I was a young, stupid girl from, Arizona, and I found myself in um, Charleston, South Carolina, and um, on my first ship, which was a submarine tender. And so longer than two football fields, um, huge complement of people, I don't know, maybe 1500 people, I'm not sure, hard to remember. Um, but there was like 60 women on board when I got on board. Um, and, you know, I was really, really naive. I was 18 years old, um, just really was not aware of the world. And, and so, you know, I stumbled my way up the brow on that ship and, um, and I joined undesignated. And so in the Navy, I did not have, I think for you guys, probably what you call an MOS. Mm -hmm. I didn't, didn't have one. And so in the Navy, you know, the other way I got bamboozled is that I joined up undesignated, so I didn't have a job 
which meant that I went and I worked in the deck department. And the deck department is where like you mm -hmm. chip paint and you repaint the ship and you tie the ship up, ship up when it goes, you know, when it docks. And it's it's really um, hard labor. Intense. Yeah, it's really hard labor. And I was um, and, you know, my first division that I went to, I was really being sexually harassed and um, and by some pretty senior people. And I was an E1. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was really lost, really, really lost and didn't have any friends. And and I came from Prescott where I had a lot of friends and um, and really just was was pretty isolated and um so i i and i also um i was telling lance when he and i had a talk before within my first year i was also also sexually assaulted and when mm -hmm. that happened um i came came back to the ship i told uh, one of my one of my closest friends um, who was also in our division and she told our um, our supervisor my supervisor then confronted the guy who did it and the guy who did it laughed and said it was my word against his and then my supervisor laughed and then i was confronted out on the deck department where the guy who did it plus his friends confronted me and so nothing was done and so i was really just um confused because there it just was it was a really really tough environment mm. um about yeah. go ahead by the way, these are the examples that they would use to teach us about why the regulations exist when I went through mm -hmm. training. Like yeah. that, what you just said is like scenario one of here's why we have these rules in the Navy. I, I went to the Naval Academy, so we had okay. a lot of um, the education. So to hear you say that you were in the 1980s undergoing this um, is, is incredible. And yeah, uh, for was, those, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, um, sorry, I, I interrupted you. It was, you know, I just think, I think I was really lost and I think I was also pretty alcoholic and, you know, I got myself into situations. And so a lot of the things that happened to me in the military, I took blame for. And so, you know, that would happen and then I would blame myself. Mm. And then, because, because I went on a date with him. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, I was just, it was challenging. And I think that happens to a lot of young women in the military you know they mm -hmm. they go on a date with somebody and then and then it turns into my word against his word and and then there's like no proof because you're both drunk and then but mm -hmm. it you know sexual assault happens pretty regularly and um and it took and and when i got out of the navy is when i really processed a lot of that stuff you know mm -hmm. um when i was in i had to um i had to kind of cover up mm -hmm. and protect myself emotionally because i mm -hmm. think I think I would have lost my shit if I really processed everything. Um, but um, I went to what they call mess cranking. And so in the Navy, what happens is that all young sailors go and they work in the mess decks and that's the place that you eat. And so I went to the chief's mess and um, was taken out of my division, fortunately sent to the chief's mess. and. Um, even though in my division, I was actually being sexually harassed by my chief also. And um, it was really tough times back then. It was- God damn. It was interesting. Mm. 
And, um, but you know, but also like it was the submarine community. They, they had, it, it was the wild west on ships because they were just not used to women. And so we really disrupted their flow back then mm-hmm. is what happened. Good. But we didn't, we weren't, in, we were just going where we were sent. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was a really tough position to put us in. And um, so I miss cranking. And what happened for me is I met um, another another woman who was mess cranking and she became a really close friend of mine and she was gay. And, um, and so that's when I started to realize, oh, some of the issues that I have and have always have is because I'm gay. And, Mm. but this was still probably um, late 84, early 85 that I, I went and started hanging out with her and her friends. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, I fit in for the first time in my Mm. life. I fit in. Um, But this was like, don't ask, don't tell started in, in 94. And so this was, this was real early. And um, if you want me to keep going on this, this was back when uh, we were being hunted. Mm. And so um, don't ask, like a lot of people understand what don't ask, don't tell is, And we can certainly get into that. Before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, NCIS, which is not just a TV show, it's actually people, um, they hunted us. And so, and they were, there would be a couple NCIS agents that would be stationed and attached to a a large ship like that. And so they were trying to find us. And so um, we called it witch hunts um, because Mm -hmm. what they would do is they would um, they could have no no evidence, no proof, anything other than maybe even a picture, maybe just somebody else saying that girl is gay. And they would call you in and then they would interrogate you. Wow. So you would be sitting there being interrogated. Then they would tell you, we'll go easy on you if you tell us who else is gay. And so they would, I mean, it was like, it was like you were a criminal. Mm. And then they would be so hard on you that then some some people would actually turn in their partners because then they think wow. they, were, they were going to go easy on them. But um, but the deal was, is that if you were found to be gay, um, you would just be admitted, you would be separated and you'd be separated like really quickly. Hmm. And, um, and so it was um, so we were we were taught to, to look over our shoulder constantly if we were out in town. And we went to a gay bar, sometimes NCIS agents and other people on the ship would go and try to like be at the gay bar to see who goes to the gay bars. Mm. Even caught in a gay bar, you were assumed to be gay and then you would be kicked out. So, um, wow. And that was like immediate outprocing, right? It wasn't like, um, it was like drug use, like you're out. It was like worse than drug use. It was like, really, it was yeah, if my my remembrance of it um, mm. was that within 24 hours that person was gone. Oh. So it was it, and so it was typically an administrative separation. Um, the girl actually who was my um, my first best friend, who I'm still friends with, um, she was being sexually harassed really bad in her division. Um, mm. She, when she got, um, she got to her division and her senior chief sat her down and said, there are, um, this is, this is how I feel about women in, uh, there are two places for women. One is in the kitchen and the other is in the bed, something like that. Mm. And he said, do we understand each other? 
And she said, yes, Senior Chief. But she was absolutely harassed and harassed and harassed by not just him, but by other members in her division. And so after a while, she just turned herself in for being gay. So it was like a, it was also a really easy way to get out. Um, if you, if you, if it'd been too much. Yeah. And so she, that's how she got out. And, um, but when somebody got out, so she got out and I didn't have any contact with her because if I had contacted her, asked her how she was doing anything, then they mm -hmm. would have known that I was her friend and that I could have been separated too. Wow. So mm. you didn't, you know, like somebody was there one day and then they were gone the next. Yeah. And, and there's not a lot of privacy on a ship. Yeah. Definitely not back then when there's no cell phones or social media, none of that stuff. There's no way to stay in contact other than a phone call on the ship, which people would know about. Right. A phone call on the ship or, you know, like back then we had pay phones at the end of the pier. So we would right. go down there, but, you know, we would write letters to each other. And that's, mm. um, that was our primary mode of communication and probably the safest mm -hmm. right. Our relationships for everything was probably the safest because fortunately they couldn't open our mail. <laughs> yeah. Right. They, they would have tried if they could. Yeah. So this was happening your first and second year in service this was happening my first nine years in the service okay okay so you asked about re-enlisting yeah. yeah that's that's what i'm curious about because uh, what i'm hearing is you're having a terrible experience right. not to mention the job sucks mm -hmm. uh you're being harassed you're being assaulted uh mm -hmm. basically no one respects women and you're being hunted right why on earth would anyone re-enlist right okay so i've been in for about um I don't know, maybe a year and a half or so when um, the first lieutenant on the ship needed a yeoman. So the first mm -hmm. lieutenant is the guy who runs the deck department or, or the woman who runs the deck department. And, and so I got tagged to go down there and be the yeoman and I fell in love with that job. And, mm. and the yeoman that was working for him was gonna go to yeoman A school. And then, that, and then he found out that he would have to extend for a year and, um, and so he was like, no. And so they offered it to me. Mm. So they offered it to me and I said, yes, cause then I could get out of deck. I mean, it was like, it was a real carrot. Cause I really, I liked it. I loved doing administrative work. I loved it. I was really good at it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I became a yeoman, which got me out of deck, which changed my life. Mm. Um, I started working in the admin office. Um, there two, there was three of us that were in the admin office who were gay. Um, <laughs> wow. It was a lot of fun. There was a lot of lesbians in the military. Um, at least yes. back, back then I'm not, I'm, and I'm guessing still now, um, I got out three years ago and I would say that was still yeah. relatively accurate. There's a lot of lesbians in the world. There, yeah. there was a lot of us in the military. I mean, yeah. the deal is, is, is back then, regardless of if I'm in the military or not in the military, mm -hmm. I'm hunted back then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I could come back to my hometown. I mean, I didn't have a lot going for me. Um, so I could come back here if I wanted to, but I would still be hiding. And so mm. um, I liked my job. I made third class. Um, and then I got, and then I transferred to another ship down in Kings Bay, Georgia, because I met a girl, fell in love with her, my first girlfriend. And, um, and she was on that ship. And, and so I put in for a, a what's it called, a swap? whole swap. Mm. And so I swapped with a yeoman from that ship. He came back to Charleston. I went down there 
And I mean, I found my people. And so um, I think it wasn't about, like I, I liked my job and I was really good at it, but I loved the people. Mm. And so that's why I re-enlisted. And, mm. and when I re-enlisted, I mean, I wasn't going to, but my master chief sat me down and then we called, we called the detailer and the detailer said he had a two year um, tour down in the Caribbean on a little island called Antigua. Mm. I was like, hell yes, I'm going to the Caribbean. <laughs> and so I went to the Caribbean for two years. So, I mean, in, it was kind of like when I, um, when I enlisted, like I didn't have anything going for me still. Like I, I didn't mm -hmm. have a degree. I didn't take advantage of like any of the, the benefits that the Navy gives you. Cause I was just this young alcoholic lesbian who was running from NCIS. I mean, I was just really trying to survive. Yeah, survival. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was. And, and, but my survival was not dependent on the Navy. It was dependent on life and mm -hmm. it would have been hard to be in or out of the Navy. And I had some really had made some really, really close friends by that point who are still some of my best friends to this day. And so mm -hmm. that's why I stayed in. Yeah. That's a really great point you make. I'm glad you're sharing that. Um, and I, we want to keep going with the story because I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, when Don't Ask, Don't Tell is being enacted in the 90s. But um, we really, when we talk to the people, the veterans who are connecting with our message and, and what we're putting out is one of the biggest things about the military is exactly what you just said. Like a lot of kids come into the military with with like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Whatever, whatever's going on in the military, I don't know, but this ain't it. So I got to go. And so mm -hmm. when they're in, there's this tendency to, you know, you, you have a hard job or you have experiences like what you had and, and that basically like Lance and I've talked about it. It just puts your trauma in a pressure cooker mm -hmm. and it, you're just constantly on, on, on alert, regardless of what your job is in the military. This is true for a lot of us. Right. Um, and you do create these bonds. You create these really strong bonds. One, because you're in really confined spaces, whether you're on a ship or in a battalion, in the infantry or whatever, you're always together. And then two, because you have these shared stories, shared experiences from back home. You talk to a kid, you know, who's like, oh yeah, I had a similar experience getting beat up in high school, or I had this thing or whatever. And you're like, wow, I didn't realize there were so many of us, this type of person in the military. And then you have a, the addition of like this um, uh, unified mission or, or objective or thing that you're all doing. And so it feels like you're all, whether you agree with it or not, you're kind of driving in this direction together, yep. which is rare when you're just a student in high school somewhere in, in America. Right. Um, so all those factors are really important to why people both are attracted to it. Oh, and not to mention all the kind of high and mighty uh, in pie in the sky, meaning and purpose things about um you know why you're doing what you're doing to begin with we, we haven't talked about that but all those things keep people bring people in the military keep them in and it's one of it's a lot of the reasons why they have struggles after they get out right. because now it's on you to figure out how to do that and that is is no small feat right 100% yeah i think the military is just this big pot of misfits who come together for <laughs> And I mean, the mission is one thing, and I think definitely the mission, but, um, but I think it's, it's just really, we come together and we, we become a family and that's how I felt. Mm. And not just with my gay veterans, but with anybody, like, like everybody I worked with, I mean, I just felt 
like we took care of each other and mm -hmm. and it it just became something that was so second nature to me and and the higher i went in rank the more protective i was of the people who worked for me and um and i just i just became that person who like i loved leading people i loved everything that i did um mm -hmm. in the military I, I just really loved it and um didn't really like i didn't like I wasn't a person in the military today. I think I might've questioned some of what's happening today a lot more, but also, you know, we were so sheltered from everything that was happening in the world. Like I didn't, mm. like it didn't matter who was the president back then. It didn't right, matter, right. the mission didn't change. Yep. Mm. You know, the mission- Especially in the Navy. It, yeah, it stayed the yep. same. And mm -hmm. it just, it was, it was different. And, um, and man, I'm, I'm so grateful for it. Like I, like I love, I, like when I went back and I worked at VVSD at the Veterans uh, Homeless Shelter, man, I loved it. It's like, oh man, I missed you guys. Like, here's my, <laughs> like here's my people. And but mm -hmm. when I got out, I was just like, I'm done. I'm so done. And yep. I needed that. I needed that. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's interesting you say that because I've talked to many veterans over time, and many of them have the same say the exact same phrasing i'm done yeah and they cut all ties with the military and all their friends and everything and it takes them time before they can come back and entertain the idea of being a veteran um and i think that that space where we cut off from the military and then when we go back it's it's a healing space yeah and i feel like a lot of people don't do that and that's what keeps them in their loops yeah uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's some of the challenges is, um, and we we've talked about it a bunch of times is that um, uh, your healing cannot be institutionalized. Like, you can't create, you can't heal the way the same way you were created in the military. It's not basic training to heal. Right. It, the the journey is actually the quite opposite. It's it's not stripping your identity. It's like regaining your sense of agency and sovereignty and knowing what that even means and. And that journey is not one you have to decide to take, not one that you're taken on. Um, it, it's like the complete opposite process uh, for uh, for when you enlisted. Yeah, it's taking the cloak off. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's getting out of hiding and starting to it like, is. who yeah. are you really? Like, who are mm -hmm. you and discovering those things? Right, yeah. Um, so as you're going back to your story, you're in, uh, you, you've enlisted at least one time already or re-enlisted at least one time. You're really enjoying your job. You're still being witch hunted uh, by NCIS, and, and you're kind of seeing this um, underworld, underbelly uh, community uh, yeah, of gay, gay people who are kind of yeah, you're gay yeah. underground mm -hmm. um, uh, in the '80s and going into the '90s. So I imagine at this point, um, most people have a conversation at the ten-year uh, mark. They've been in like, "Hey, do I want to stay in for a career? Twenty, or am I done now?" Am I, am I complete with the service? So, um, and, and that coincides around the time that you're talking about don't ask, don't tell. So what, what was going on in your mind at that time? And, and what, um, yeah, what kind of decisions were, made you stick even, even further in the military? So I, um, after I, after Antigua, I got sent to SYNCPAC fleet in Hawaii and that's the four-star admiral's headquarters in Hawaii. And I fell in love with Hawaii, um, fell in love with everything about it love Hawaii, loved being at SYNCPAC fleet. I worked for the ops officer directly and um, he was 
uh, 06 captain who was up for Admiral and I worked for him in the fleet ops officer. So two Oh sixes, I was there, uh, their yeoman in their front office and loved it. Um, and that was 1989. I got sent there. And I also met, um, I met my partner, uh, who is now my ex, but we were together for 19 years. Mm. And so, um, I was a second class at that time in E5 and just loved the job. But this is during like the time frame when like don't ask or not don't ask don't tell um, Desert Storm, which is completely different than don't ask don't tell Desert Storm, Desert Shield, all that stuff was happening. And um, and I just had this like insight to like military operations that I never had before. And yeah. um, so um, fell in love with this woman was sailor by day, gay by night. Um, you know, really learned the skill of hiding a lot more because there was a lot more on the line. She was an E6, I was an E5. Um, you know, we learned how to, like, I, I have this one chapter in my book I call Forbidden Love, where I talk about, like, when we're out in town, like, even walking next to each other, at, like, in the mall, if our hands would even, like, swipe next to each other, like there would be like this, I would brace because I was always mm -hmm. afraid that somebody would see us. And so we, you really, like, I really, really learned how to navigate like this love. Um, Cause I was really in love with her and I really had to learn how to navigate that um, in hiding. And, mm -hmm. and so it was just like the next step deeper into hiding. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so at the mm -hmm. end, it was, we were together for about two and a half years when she got stationed at a little island called Diego Garcia um, in the middle, oh, middle, middle of the, nowhere. Yep. God dang. And so she got sent out there with the promise that she would be sent back to the location of her choice when she did a year. And so um, she left and I hit rock bottom with addiction at the same time. Mm. So my alcoholism, so she left in... Um, May of 92, August of 92, I got sober. And so next month I'll have 30 years. And so it was a, thank you. It was a really, really, really tough time. Um, right after I got sober, I made first class. And so hmm. I had re-enlisted again for a squadron um, that was on Oahu on an um, airbase called Barbers Point that is now decommissioned. And so I was going to Barbara's Point with the belief that she was coming back to Hawaii because she was going to get the location of her choice, another empty promise, right? But um, were you both married while you were on active duty? I was not, no. I was the last year. Okay, so like now, like like straight people got what was called co-located with their spouses, right? Yes, yep, that still exists. We did not because we were in hiding. And so our right. so we were always assumed to be single, right? So like my next of kin was my parents. Mm. Um, you know, everything that we did, um, we were assumed to be single. So we were treated single. We had to hide like we were single. She came back after six months on leave, called the detailer and was told she could go to Guam, Guam or Guam. And so she got oh. sent to Guam for, so we were apart for three and a half years. Mm. And that was the first three years of my recovery. It was a really, really, really hard time. It was the, it's the meat of my book. Um, but I made first class and 
Um, and I was, and then I got transferred to VP1, which was this, um, it was a P3 squadron out of Barbara's Point. And that was, that was when I became all sailor, like super in, very driven. I was just sober. Like my addiction went from like drinking to attention. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I success. was success driven, yeah. all the mm-hmm. things, right? And so I Tight, had, tighten the bun a little bit more. Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> I didn't have I had a really short butch haircut, but okay. yeah. Metaphorically, yeah. I tightened metaphorical it up. bun, right. yeah. <laughs> right. Um yeah. so I, you know, I transferred out there. I met, and that's mm-hmm. when I met um the man who would become my every my mentor, the guy mm-hmm. and he was the command master chief of the squadron. Mm-hmm. And um I wanted to be just like him. And so Karen, uh, just for those who aren't Navy folks, uh a P3 yeah. squadron is an aircraft. It's it's a plane, big plane, rotors um just for all you out there so she went from ship life or uh, i guess it would have been shift to to on onshore operations to a squadron of aircraft yeah and so i get out to i get out to to vp1 and and i'm told um that we're going to deploy to diego garcia oh so a, a couple months after I report there, I'm going out to the same island that my partner is on. And um, and so I'm gonna get to see her for like a couple of weeks before then she transfers to Guam and I won't see her for another couple of years. And so, you know, it's just this wild, like universe, just small world, small Navy, all this stuff was happening. Mm. And, um, and so I got there and I, you know, but it's, I mean, Diego Garcia is a tiny, tiny island, super tiny. They call it the footprint. It's like, I don't know what they call it, but it's this, it's like a footprint shape. And, um, and so I go out there and, and all eyes are on us. She's a first class up for chief. I'm now a first class wanting to become a chief. And we are both very much in hiding, very driven with both of our jobs. And so we see each other, but we're both very much in hiding and we don't have a relationship mm. when we see each other, which was really hard and confusing wow. for me because yeah. like, even we were both in the barracks. I mean, I had, and, but like, we did not have zero affection, zero nothing because getting caught would have meant the death of our careers. And neither one of us was willing to risk our careers at that point. Um, questions? We good? I'm, I'm very fascinated. There's so many different levels to this that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm gleaning. First of all, I know nothing about the Navy. I'm an army infantry grunt. I know very little about co-mingling co-ed stuff because I was infantry. We didn't have any. Uh, and then what, what I'm, what's blowing my mind is how, my type of people, the infantry, the door kickers, the grunts, we're always looking behind our back because we're afraid somebody's going to, you know, do stuff to us. We, we go into the restaurant, we pick the corner in the back with our face facing the entrance because we want to see what's going on. You're looking behind your back for a totally different level. And it just, it's blowing my mind seeing this other part of the military that I've, I have zero experience on. So this yeah. is very, I don't want to say enlightening, but we'll say enlightening. 
Yeah, it's a different kind of trauma. And, mm -hmm. and I think um, when I wrote the book, the, I wrote the book and, and all of the trauma, all of it came up and out and had to. Um, mm -hmm. But working with, I work with, I've done some EMDR on it and stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and what my therapist has said is, you know, there are specific traumas and then there's a lifetime of trauma. And this has been a lifetime of trauma mm -hmm. of looking over my shoulder. So I do the same thing. You know, I don't like, I don't like my back to the door. I don't, I'm, you know, I'm forever looking over my shoulder. I, I do things like um, I avoid pride because pride means that I'm vulnerable. Um, and, and, you know, and I try to like, I'm, I'm as visible as I, as I can be, but out in public, there is a part of me that is just constantly looking over my shoulder. Mm -hmm. um, when people know that I'm gay, I mean, I can chameleon and, but what I try to do is I try to be really honest about who I am today, which puts a bullet, which puts a, um, a target on my back. Mm. And I know that. You still feel that way? 100%. Mm. Yeah, that hasn't, that has not gone away for me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the climate of the world today, I mean, pride, prides are accepted. getting attacked and, mm -hmm. and there is a lot of acceptability for, um, homophobia and things like that. And so, you know, the difference today is that I'm really honest with my journey today. Mm. And so I'll say the thing, you know, it took me forever to say I'm gay. Um, took me forever to say it without like, without like that, you know, that bracing thing, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. um, that bracing where like, I'm constant, I'm like immediately in fight or flight just by saying those two words. Because mm -hmm. those two words represent danger, or they always right. did there's a, there's a lot of history behind those two words for you. Yeah. Huge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And my, um, my biggest trauma was because I said those two words mm -hmm. and that's what sealed. And then that sealed it kind of within me, um, for two decades, two and a half decades before I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so, yeah. So, so as you're, experiencing and I want to come back to this point because I think um the experience of what you just said about bracing when you express to somebody that you were gay it both holds um a lot of value because of your experience specifically around being gay in the military being gay in society at that time and also that that sense of bracing um the trauma response of like uh, the, the tightening the mm -hmm. the tension that so many of us are holding that has to do with a lot of other things as well. So this is just one dimension of it, right. which is, it was kind of central to your story. Um, and I want our, our listeners to also, you know, think about where you are bracing, like where, what areas of your life do you find yourself bracing? Where does it come up where you don't necessarily intend it to, where you, you become defensive or without really even realizing where you're hiding, uh, holding tension uh, without really realizing you're doing it. And I think it's a very common experience, especially if you've gone through any trauma at all, but also a common experience in the military in general, where, again, we're compounded, right? Lance has talked about being in infantry and like sitting at the back, you know, back of the, the place and looking at the exits and seeing who's getting too fucked up. Um, mm -hmm. Our capacity to, at, at, at the beginning, just recognize it. And then later to slowly be able to build a capacity to be like, oh, I'm safe. This is okay. Right. Nothing's going to happen here. Um, and then what that allows you to do afterwards is, is even more incredible when you're right. trying to heal. Um, so 
to your point, you were in the Navy going through this period with your partner, uh, barely talking to each other. Um, it sounds like it's barely a relationship. It's challenging. Yeah. It's challenging. Because for the first um, two and a half years, we were inseparable. You know, I mean, right. we lived together, we, we worked together. I mean, not in the same like exact place, but close. Um, so we were, I mean, just inseparable. I was just really, really, really in love with her. Um, and, but then, yeah, I mean, there weren't computers and email back then. So mm -hmm. it was, it was snail mail and, you know, and we had some, we had some really, you know, we had some deep challenges around communicating with each other. And, you know, there was just, it was challenging because, you know, what she was dealing with on now the ship out of Guam and going all over the place and what I was dealing with at the squadron and deploying, you know, to different various places was just different. And so, you know, she would call me, you know, from these like wacky places like Abu Dhabi, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and she would, so she'd call me and, um, and she, you know, and I knew that she'd have to stand in line for a payphone for like an hour mm -hmm. just to get a 10 minute phone call with me. Mm -hmm. And so for 10 minutes, you know, like, and then she can't, we can't say, I love you. And we can't, mm -hmm. you know, say babe. And we can't, I mean, the phones were monitored. If like, if yeah. I was in Diego Garcia and she would be able to get a hold of me, the phones were monitored. And so we would, we had to act like we were just friends, which really, you know, was, I mean, it pushed us into this place to where intimacy and vulnerability became a huge challenge for us. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was tough. It was really, really tough. Um, but, you know, we worked through it as, as best we could for those, mm -hmm. you know, three and a half years, actually, that we were apart. Mm -hmm. um, during that time frame, uh, for the, the, um, I had a few challenges with men during that time frame. Um, one was I got when I went to Diego Garcia, her cousin came and stayed at the house and watched my house. And mm -hmm. um, we had a cat. And so he watched the house and the cat. And um, and he somehow thought that he and I were in a relationship together. And so um, so then he somehow figured out that we were that she and I were together when he had some friends over and they saw a picture of us and they're like, that is not your fiance. Um, those two are our partners. They're gay. And then he wigged out on me and um, stalked me. And so when I got back, here's this guy living in my house who was stalking me. And um, and that was really, really scary and dangerous. And he started to write letters to my command and to her command. And he would write it like a letter to me, to my command from her. And then he would say, it's from her, my lesbian buddy. So he was trying to get us both kicked out. And um, I mean, I called the police, like he was, it was intense. And so at the same time that he um, thought that we were in a relationship together, my mentor also fell in love with me, the guy I was telling you about. And so I had two, um, and so, and I was closeted to both. And so that was another huge challenge of being in hiding because, because I couldn't be honest with people about who I was right. without getting mm -hmm. kicked out of the Navy. <clears throat> so today, you know, I mean, you know, a, a guy has a, has a crush or whatever, and it's, you know, I'm gay. 
And it's the first, yeah, it's the first thing you say. Right. And mm-hmm. most men respect that and, mm-hmm. you know, go with it. But I couldn't be honest with either one of these guys. And um, so I don't know how he got the impression, the cousin got the impression that he and I were in a relationship because we were not. But he had created this fantasy in his in his world. And then same thing with my boss, the command master chief. He had created, you know, um, this fantasy that that um, that he and I were in a relationship together. And um, like no, not, no exchanges of any kind, physical touch, nothing. No, when we were on deployment and he was I mean, we were kindred spirits. So, yeah, there was there was that. And so, um, you know, I was so, newly sober. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying there's a c- connection, like a friendship, but not, yeah, yeah. Connection. So um, huge mentorship, um, mm-hmm. wanted to be just like him, but he saw me differently. And, mm-hmm. and so what happened there was that um, we're getting ready to, to come out of deployment and, and he calls me into his office and, um, and a wife, or not a wife, his wife was called by another chief and that chief told his wife that he and I were having an affair, which we were not. And so, but his wife believed that he and I were having an affair. And so he calls me in his office and says, you know, I need to tell you something. A chief called my wife, told my wife that, that you and I are having an affair. I'm still a first class at the time. And, um, and he says, but I, I do want you to know that I have feelings for you. And I said, well, that's, I don't have feelings for you. You're my mentor. Like it's not mutual. And, um, and so, but I worked it, for, for another two years. Mm, so it got after, weird after that. It, it got, I mean, he was still my mentor, still all the things at work, but it, it got weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was really in, in a lot of ways biding my time because I knew that he, I knew that she always believed that we had an affair. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Two years later, I'm leaving Hawaii and I make chief. And, you know, I have 11 years in at that point and it's like everything to me. It's like every enlisted person wants to be a chief. And so um, I make chief and I'm going and I, and I transfer to Whidbey Island. We do a home port change. And so I go to Whidbey Island for like six months and then I'm getting stationed down in San Diego and I'm, I'm gonna reunite with my partner who is now in San Diego. And so I just can't wait to get with her, get back with her, start living our lives again, um, get away from the squadron. Like I love the squadron, but you know, it was weird, right? It was, mm-hmm. and, um, and I wanted him to be free of, like, I wanted both of us to be free of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, I won't tell you exactly what happened because it's, it's the majority of, it's a lot of my book, but sure. he tells me again that he's in love with me. And um, and he tells me that on the first day that I come in as a new chief. So I come in, it's like the best day of my career. I'm wearing my new khakis. I'm, you know, everybody's calling me chief, right? First mm-hmm. time in my career. It's like, it's a really altered experience to go through that. Mm-hmm. Under. Yeah, I can hear <laughs> that, man. Yeah, for, for those of you ground pounders, uh, chief is E7. And chief. it's also... It is a bigger deal in the Navy. I don't know why exactly, but it is a bigger deal when you make E7 than it is in the in the Army and the Marine Corps. There's hmm. like a different like. Well, you change uh, uniforms, everything. Change uniforms, everything. You're you're seen completely differently. I think in the Marine Corps you become more. 
it's more like E5 to E6. That's like the big transition, but it's not quite as like big as the chief thing. So that's, it's a huge accomplishment, especially for a woman in the nineties. It's because they Um, hand out promotions in the army like candy. And the army is a little different, even more than the Marine Corps. Yeah. (laughs) I got promoted. (laughs) Continue Karen, please. Back then we went through initiation too. So um, there yeah, was a difference right. today. I think, I don't know if they call it induction. I mean, it's gone through different phases of, of words, but back then. They still a, do something. Yeah, they do something. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a huge transition process. But yeah. uh, back then we were initiated, which was a lot of hazing and. Um, <laughs> Mid-career boot camp, basically. It really, it's, yeah. it, uh, it, it was a, it was quite an experience. So, but, you know, huge honor and um I, I show up that day he calls me in his office and he hands me his master chief anchors. And so anchors are what we wear on our collars. Um, and I had just made E7 and he was an E9. And so he says, you know, I want you to have these for the day that you make master chief. And so, you know, I, he's my mentor. I'm like, you know, huge mm-hmm. honor, all this stuff. And then he tells mm-hmm. me that he's leaving his wife and he tells me all the things that I don't want to hear and that he's in love with me. And Um, you know, it was the second time that he had told me that he's in love with me. And, you know, I took a huge chance that day and I told him that I was gay and, um, I could have been kicked out, um, right in that Mm -hmm. moment. Cause that was during don't ask, don't tell. And I was telling the most senior leader in my Mm -hmm. command that I'm gay, but I felt like at the time that, um, I, I just, Mm -hmm. it was like a do or die kind of moment, right? It's like either Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to like hide again, or I'm just mm-hmm. going to be like, you know, like, this is the truth. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I didn't know what he would do with it, but um, I won't tell you exactly what happened, but I will tell mm-hmm. you, it was the biggest trauma I've ever gone through. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one that really sealed, um, like I, I had to seal it up inside of me mm-hmm. to serve out the rest of my career. And um mm-hmm. And that's what um, came up during for the in the book for the most part. Like that was the healing process I had to go through, mm-hmm. was was that experience. And so for the rest of my career, you know, those two words "I'm gay" were um, two year two words that I was really um, because I felt like if I said I'm gay, not only was I in trouble, but I also made like it created trouble for other people. And, um, and so it, it just, it created this huge, um, I don't know, vacuum of trauma. I don't even really know how to put it, but I felt like I was a danger to other people by being myself. And, mm. and so I served another 11 years. I got transferred down to SEAL Team 5, which was the joy. I mean, your career just keeps getting more intense at every turn. Going yeah. to a SEAL team is not a walk in the park, even for the people who work in the admin. No, it was, but it was the place I needed to be. I, mm. I what, what, yeah. What was that like? I love those guys. Like mm. it was, you know, because the seals are like, they're not like in the Navy, right? They're the, no. they're like their own little special entity and they play by their rules. And so that's right up my alley. And I, I was this hardcore, like Navy chief. And, um, I remember the, like one of the first things that happened, I, I show up at this command and there's this Lieutenant walks in like the first day and, you know, he's this officer and he's like, hi, my name is Frank. And I'm like, Frank. Right. And I'm like, first I'm, name. so I'm like, 
I'm Chief Salt. And he just looks at me and he's like, you'll chill the hell out eventually. And, um, and I did like those guys, like I never talked about what happened in my previous command because I couldn't, mm -hmm. but those guys helped me to chill out. I mean, it, they really, like I became a chief and I became mm -hmm. like, um, I loved it. And still some of my closest friends are, are retired Navy SEALs. Um, just really, really, not, not only the, the SEALs, but the techs that I worked with, it was what I needed at the time. Um, so where do you mm. want to go from here? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about the, uh, um, the SEAL experience a little bit, uh, and, and I'm, I'm more curious about like, don't ask, don't tell being in the Navy around this time. Um, partly because it's kind of a, an oxymoron, like, uh, being on a SEAL team is like being in a, um, like. I'm trying to find a good analogy for it for people who are on CLTs. I know a few guys in it and special forces in general, but it, their job is extremely intense. But when they're not on the job, it's like everyone is hanging out in flip flops and yeah. they know how to flip the switch. Hand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even in the compound, like we wore PT clothes all day. Exactly. So as long as you didn't leave the compound, you were like, we wore um, blue running shorts and a brown t shirt. And so, like, it just, it like demilitarized me somewhat. You yeah, know? that's a, that's what I'm curious about. Is that kind of like the turning down of the volume a little bit, yeah. especially since you're not a SEAL, so you're not on mission or whatever, Right. turning down the volume. And then uh, as this kind of lurking thing, don't ask, don't tell is coming around where it's no NCIS is no longer hunting people, mm -hmm. but it's it's not quite like celebrated to be gay and to be open about it. No. So the was thing repealed during the Obama administration. Correct. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. 2011 is when people could start. Yeah, I was, I was in the, yeah, I was in school when that started happening. Yeah. So the only, the only thing that really happened, well, not the only thing. So a few things happened with Don't Ask, Don't Tell. One, we quit being witch hunted, but there was still a lot of people that got kicked out. Still like, I want to say 12 to 1500 people annually still got kicked out. So they were still oh. hunted by like homophobic people. And so mm -hmm. if you got caught, a lot, I mean, there's a lot of people who were kicked out during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I want to say, like, I could be off on this. Um, 14,000 people during those wow. years. Mm. Um, I mean, it's it was still a huge problem, but on enlistment and security documents, there was a question that said, have you ever had homosexual tendencies? And both of those were removed. And so every time I went up for, like, a security clearance, like, investigation or whatever, that that question scared the crap out of me because mm -hmm. like I, I had like an SBI I mean I was a yeoman so I did a lot of classified and and that question was always like hanging over my head and so so after that it wasn't hanging over my head anymore mm -hmm. um, so that was taken out and then I think that was it I mean it was really like as long as you didn't say I'm gay the no deal is you could you. serving but it didn't mean that people still weren't kicked mm -hmm. out right yeah yeah so but your experience at the time was like, oh, you kind of relaxed all the, both in your unit, you know, in terms of like the intensity of the military and uh, with the policy as it changes. At least that's what I'm hearing. It did make things better um, yeah. because because not being hunted was yeah. a huge deal. It, I still looked over my shoulder like, yeah. but I, I still do, mm -hmm. you know, but that um, it did it, it like I a lot of people. We'll say like don't ask don't tell was horrible 
And I will tell them, no, no, no. What was horrible was before Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Mm. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was, was horrible, but it was a step in the right direction. The problem with Don't Ask, Don't Tell, or a problem, was that, you know, it was, it was kind of like um, the gay community, the LGBT community, LGBTQ, like we're kind of used as pawns. And so Clinton at the time promised that he would make things better for the gay community. And then he really didn't. Like he ended up, um, like we got Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but that was, you know, um, General Powell was the one that actually um, recommended that, whatever. But mm -hmm. then DOMA, the, um, then Clinton signed DOMA, which was the Defense Marriage, Defense Something Marriage Act, which meant that um, that gay people couldn't be couldn't be married. So he really became very hypocritical, in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. And that just, you know, there's so much pressure, I think, against, you know, people who are marginalized in general, there's so much pressure to keep us oppressed for some reason. Mm -hmm. And so you might go in with like the, I'm going to do this as the president. And then you get in there and you find out, yeah, I'm really not going to yeah. do yeah, it's the nature of politics, especially right. at that scale. And and in the defense, in defense, it's probably still the most stringent place uh, in our society. Like it, like it, our society may be further ahead by like leagues from what's going on in the military or in in the defense kind of world anyway. Right. Um, and even society is controlled to some degree by these laws and regulations or whatever. Um, so it's interesting to see how it's progressed. Like you very much said, like in the beginning, it was like harassed by your chief, harassed by the guys in your unit, harassed by everybody. Um, all the way up to now, we're in a SEAL team. Everyone's kind of having a familiar relationship with you. Don't mm -hmm. ask, don't tell. So things have been getting better for you. And still in our in the culture, it's still kind of crazy to hear that uh, even in the 90s. And I imagine now it's, it's even crazier. So if someone who's a veteran, who's a gay veteran, who was not open or... Um, out during that time to hear you talk about the 80s and 90s must be transformative especially as um we haven't even gone through 9-11 yet we haven't gone through any of this uh, in this part of your story so i'm curious um you know to to kind of towards the end of your career um fast forward a bit to i imagine you were in in the it must have been early 2000s right yeah i got out in 2006 okay okay mm -hmm. so as you're going kind of post nine during 9-11, post 9-11, mm -hmm. um, what keeps you in the Navy? Why do you decide to get out? What is what is what is kind of uh, what we usually start the podcast, which is the transition? What is the transition yeah. from the military like uh, in those first couple of years? Yeah. So I was um, so fast forward. I hit 20 years and I'm and I have terminated shore duty to try to make master chief because I'm an idiot. And. So I'm on an aircraft carrier, deployed on an aircraft carrier, trying to make Master Chief. And I'm, I love the people. I have always loved the people to this day. Best part about the military, the people. Um, but I, the, I'm on the ship and, I, and what happened for me is I thought, um, I have zero freedom. Zero freedom. I don't have freedom. Like I can't be myself on the ship personally. I mean, I had friends who knew I was gay and people in my squadron who knew I was gay. Um, but I was so much in hiding and I was so tired of it. And I hit the 20 year mark and I, then I was like, what the hell am I doing in the military anymore? And, um, and so I, 
I put in my retirement papers on that deployment because, because I realized that it wasn't okay to not be free anymore. And, mm. uh, and was miserable um, in many ways on that deployment. It was a really tough deployment. We lost, we lost one of our airplanes, lost four people. Um, just, it was tough. And so I got home, transitioned out, um, was just so over it. Um, you you were tired at this point. Yeah, I was. Yeah. yeah. And so I, on my last day, I write in the book, I drive home. Um, I can't do a retirement ceremony because my partner would be sitting in the front row. I can't give her the flag. I can't be myself. I have so much bottled up. I have so much bottled up at that point that even I knew that even, even like passing the flag and all the things that, that I've been a part of for other people's ceremonies, I can't do that. Wow. I I cannot. That's incredible. There's Mm. no way I can stand up and talk about my career and watch my partner in the front row who I'd been together with at that point for 16 years. Um, There's just like, I'm, I'm, I'm a wreck. And so I drive home, I, um, I walk up the stairs, I take off my uniform, I take off my ribbons and my anchors and all the things. Mm-hmm. I put those in a keepsake, I walk down, back downstairs and I throw my uniform in the trash and I'm done. Wow. Um, I'm just done. I don't go to the commissary, I don't go to the exchange. It wasn't that I, I mean, I think a lot of my friends thought that I turned my back on the military, it wasn't that. It was that I was trying to find me prior to the military and the me that was prior to the military was no longer there. Mm-hmm. So the, you wild, were a girl. the wild, free young girl who, mm-hmm. you know, had some sense of like um, independence, all those things that I just mm-hmm. like really crave. She was, I was lost, really lost. And so um, I just started I started this journey, but I, I figured out. And so like three years after I retired, um, she is still closeted to her family and we've been together for 19 years and I'm wow. sick and tired of being, um, in the closet. Yeah. In the closet. Like she, my family all knew about her, but, um, there was so much shame and fear, um, that just permeated everything. Right. And I, was really battling that. And so how, as I'm trying to come out and be myself, she's really afraid of rejection. And I, and, and she had a uncle who um, was really tortured by, and I don't want to say tortured, but um, he was gay and he, you know, ostracized quite a bit. And so she had seen it in her family mm-hmm. and was afraid of that. And, um, but we just got to this place to where I, I just, we couldn't do it anymore. And, um, and so I split with her. I moved out on my own. I got, um, a dog. He's still with me and, um, his name is Paco. He's my guy. And I just started my life over and I became a personal trainer. And then I started this holistic journey. And then I, and then I fell in love with psychology and I went to school and was super, super driven in, learning about psychology and had a new girlfriend and um, and it's like 20, so I'll fast forward some. It's 2017, new girlfriend, two dogs, a house, whatever, doing, doing good. Thinking, 
out to out to everybody in my life, all this stuff. And I'm in this um, I'm in this online course, online um, forum, and I have a rainbow next to my name. And and a guy on the the guy in the forum says, "Hey, Karen, why a rainbow?" And it's a guy who knew I was gay, and I froze. And so that bracing. I absolutely froze in that moment. And I'd been out for 11 years and I thought I was free. I thought mm. I was free. And in that moment, I was, I knew I wasn't free. And so I, I lied. And I said, I just love the colors of the rainbow. Cause all I had to say in that one moment was because I'm gay. But in that one moment, what, what it felt like for me was that here's all of these people in this online forum and none of them know me and I'm not safe. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I safe I to be lied. seen in your full, full self. I mean, I had created this thing where like everybody in my life knew that I was gay, but there was this unpredictability that I wasn't ready for. Yeah. The, like the people who were close to you knew, but the world at large did not. Right. Like, like I'm not walking yeah. around. Like I don't have a gay flag on my car and I don't, right, like right, I'm right. not, I'm not putting myself in situations where I'm going to be susceptible to getting, which what felt like murdered is what it feels like. Mm -hmm. And so in my body, um, it feels like if somebody knows that I'm gay and they're homophobic, I'm not safe. And the truth is, is that I'm not safe. What they do with it, I don't know. But what it feels like in my body is it feels like somebody wants to hurt me or kill me. That's what mm -hmm. it feels like. And so that was a turning point. And I came, like I came out of that I hit another huge rock bottom at that point. And, um, and that's when hiding and hydrology and all of the things, the work that I do now, like I came out of that illness, um, like sick and tired of hiding, like sick and tired of it. And, um, and so I, I, I started doing this process of coming out from hiding and not just for being gay, but for being a perfectionist and a people pleaser and a rescuer and a say yes person and all of the other ways that I've learned how to hide. And, um, and I started to see it in, in just all of these ways. And then I started to see that it's not just because I'm gay, it's mm -hmm. everybody, everybody hides. And I started to see it in everybody. And I started to see the ways that we do it. And, um, and I sat down and I started writing a book. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a self-help book on coming out from hiding. And then um, I'm writing that book, New Girlfriend and I Break Up, and, um, and my father passes away. Mm -hmm. And so it's 2019, and I come home from my, my dad before he dies, and, um, you know, just this, he had Alzheimer's, and, you know, this tortured man his whole life, you know, he, he finally got sober too, but, like, I never saw my dad do anything easy until he died. And he had the most peaceful death. And I was just like, wow. But then my mom um, was not okay. And so I lived in San Diego at the time and I moved back home. And so I find myself back in this conservative small hometown, which I love. It's beautiful up here, mountains and lakes and all the things. It's nothing, nothing not beautiful about Northern Arizona. And then 2020 hits and COVID and I'm, and I joined this class to write a book. And so I start writing. So I show up with my self-help book and um, there's like six women in this class and I'm hiding. 
I'm hiding with my humor. I'm hiding with my writing. And, and I sit down, you know, I, I start having these private sessions with my coach, the coach who's leading the course. And I tell her some of my experiences in the military. And she's like, well, that's what you have to write. And I'm like, there's no way in hell. I can't write that. Like, mm -hmm. if I write that, that will kill me. And so she's like, but that's, that's what you have to write. That's what the universe is calling. And so I started writing it and I started writing the whole journey, you know, the witch hunts and the trauma and the relationship problems and the ways I had to hide and all of it. I started just writing it and I just was, you know, and we were um, social distancing and I was in my hometown and my mom was suicidal and not doing mm. well. And really, I mean, I just was in this like tough, tough place of extreme depth and what I would consider now to be like a psychosis. I was struggling mm. and, um, and I was doing therapy on the phone with a VA therapist who probably, I would say she probably saved me. Mm. Um, and I'm writing this book and I just, and I, I mean, and I was, I was just, um, struggling, but, but the more I wrote, the more it released out of me. And then, mm. and then it came to the day and I was driven. Like, I mean, I just could not stop writing it once I started and just sobbing, like, um, it was insane, absolutely mm. insane. But I came out of it with this, um, what I would consider to be this really, um, incredible memoir about my truth that I'm really, really, really proud of. Um, but it was really, it was really hard. Um, but by writing it, it liberated me. Yeah. It's not the first time I've ever heard somebody say that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the most powerful tools I quite often talk about is first of all, breathing, breathing properly, but second of all, is writing shit down and it can be so cathartic. And all you got to do is write it down. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I mean, our, 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 what we do is we help people do what you just talked about, except by using somatics and coaching and being able to help people understand their patterns, um, how they manifest physically, how they get right. wired into your nervous system. Uh, you know, we, we take a very holistic approach to it, but as you're talking, uh, um, what comes up for me is, is the theme, um, that's true for the thing you said, man, it hit me so hard. The thing you said about not in 2017 being out for 11 years and going, holy shit, I'm still not free. Yeah. Um, that, that, I'm, yeah, I'm I've so been glad there. you came back to that. Thank you. Yeah, I've been there. I remember yeah. for me, it was much different. I, and I think it happened for me quicker than I, than I imagined, but um I had a moment like that where I, I was in a kind of corporate gig working in defense consulting and I, it was a very similar environment to the military. And I find myself kind of repeating patterns with the people, uh, people pleasing and sort of being in these, in these rooms with retired, you know, colonels and stuff. And I was like, Holy shit, I'm not free. And one of the things that we are trying to teach veterans and also help them understand is that the freedom that you get when you're out is, is, is is the first that first taste of like put taking off the uniform it, there's there's a period where it's like it's either really destabilizing 
or really exciting and usually both it's like really destabilizing really exciting because they're like whoa what's going on here i'm out of the military no structure and the longer you're in the more difficult that is so you know you were in for 20 something years if you're in for four or five it's not quite as intense but it's still there um the process of truly learning to be free which i i consider to be more about inner freedom than outer freedom you you first create the inner freedom that then creates Mm -hmm. the conditions in your life that become outer freedom uh you have to look at your trauma you have to sit with it you have to be with it you have to not just process it but transmute it like you learn how to be with it and then you go okay how can i show up differently what beliefs can i change in my life so that i don't necessarily need to continue repeating that pattern and it's not a, you know, I did a program that was 90 days. It was really transformative, but it's not a 90 day thing. It is a, sometimes it's also not linear. So sometimes it's, it's for people 10 years. And so some people, they spend less time in that dojo, let's say of, of, of contending with your trauma. But what happens is like you're describing is that like you're, you're kind of this compressed Titan, like you said, you bracing human. And then you start just slightly opening just a little bit. And every time you're op- able to open up even more, and I'm, as you're talking about this book, it's reminding me of that, that whatever your method of, of not just catharsis, but of releasing, mm-hmm. that enables you to see the world slightly differently. Like what's possible when you're not bracing anymore. And that for most humans, definitely veterans is, is a scary thing because that's the true unknown. It's not just something out there beyond you it's like what exists when i don't have this pressure on me anymore right when i don't have this tension anymore i'm so used to suffering what is that when Mm -hmm. you don't have it anymore Mm -hmm. yeah what happens when i truly allow myself to be free Mm -hmm. yeah boom clip it (laughs) (laughs) that's a sound bite yeah Yeah. Uh, I, i i think what for me i'll talk about my experience i'm truly being free is a process. Like you said, it's, it's nonlinear and it's, it's layers of an onion. Um, for me, it was a big thing, recognizing behaving and acting. Um, oh, how do I want to say this behaving how I want to behave, not according to how society, how my family, how your religion, how your work wants you to behave and then behaving on like who you want to be. Right. And when you're in the military for four or five years, you're doing everything on the military basis or 20 years. Like John said, it's going to be, might be more difficult peeling back the on the layers of the onion and getting down to who you truly are. Um, and it sounds like you're going through that wonderful process and it sounds exhilarating. It yeah, sounds beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like a, how I feel about myself today is nothing compared to how, I mean, it's just so different. Mm-hmm. And, and what I, you know, I mean, I think it's really, it's been this really interesting process because like I was hiding before I came in the Navy with addiction with, you know, um, really like misfit behavior, things like that. Just um, there was a, like I was hiding before I came in and then the military just kind of helped me hide a little bit more, you know, put a uniform on me, then it really takes, you know, then my identity goes a little bit more. And then I be, and then I figure out that I'm gay. I hide a little bit more. And then I have trauma because I'm gay. I hide a little bit more and I keep hiding. I keep hiding. And then, and then I get to this place to where I figure out, okay, the freedom doesn't come from anybody in society giving me my freedom back. Mm-mm. Like nobody, 
anybody that's homophobic against me is it's like their problem. Like that's not my problem anymore. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, it does it create a world where I'm less safe? Yes, it does. So it is a problem, mm-hmm. right? However, it doesn't mean that I'm going to change who I am anymore based on somebody else's belief about me. And that's where I really have to get to is I have to get to this place to where the hiding, it's like this question that I ask myself now, um, am I, am I safe or do I, am I unsafe or do I just feel unsafe? And, and there's a difference, you know, Mm -hmm. but there's still a huge reality for me that I think, um, straight America doesn't experience like, like I'm now single. It's easy to be a single lesbian in my hometown because I'm not walking around holding hands with a partner. If I have a partner and then I want to go downtown with my partner and I want to hold hands with her, there's a target on my back. There's Mm -hmm. not a target on my back as, as just a single person walking around town. There's so there it's, there's still layers where I'm not safe in the world. Still still there for you. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. It's still Mm -hmm. there. And mm-hmm. I have to be safe with myself. And so yeah. it's kind of like, if I get in a, if I do, if, or when I get in another relationship, mm-hmm. am I going to make that decision to hold my partner's hand downtown? If I choose mm-hmm. to, you're damn right. I am right. Mm-hmm. What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to avoid holding her hand mm-hmm. because of somebody else's opinion. Mm-hmm. And so it's like every little step is like a step away from bracing. Like I have to mm-hmm. feel it. I have to feel mm-hmm. the bracing and then I have to go and I'm going to keep being me. I got to keep being me mm-hmm. because for so long I wasn't myself or I hid myself based on, on, you know, I truly wasn't safe in the military being myself. Mm-hmm. You know, that was mm-hmm. the reality, but then in society, you know, I have to be me now because if I'm not, then I'm hiding and that creates disease. And I don't yeah. creates don't, disease. Yeah. Yeah. And that reverberates. So, you're putting oh out that God. energy on so many levels. Yeah. Yeah. Dis- Energetic on, diseases. Yeah. 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 Physical diseases. Yeah. One thing I like about <clears throat> mentioning hiding, I've said this numerous times. Um, everybody's hiding. Yeah. Something. Let, let's just pick one thing. Addiction, whether it's mm-hmm. addicted to alcohol, porn, cupcakes, whatever. Everybody has an addiction. Let's everybody does. And everybody is hiding from it. Everybody has shame in it, mm-hmm. which is really funny because like we all have shame, but we all have the same problem. We're mm-hmm. shameful that we think that the other person is going to look at us funny. But in reality, like when you kind of open up on these, these little things, um, people are quite accepting to an extent. And the ones that are not accepting are probably the ones that are hiding the most because they're even more shameful. Yeah, they are hiding the most, but they're also the most unpredictable. Right. Right. I, uh, unpredictable people, you know, for all of us, right? You guys mm-hmm. too, unpredictable people are the people you have to watch out for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, I, I like what you said about creating internal safety um, because we what we teach and what we're, we're very adamant about is that we're not going to, the point isn't to make the world safer writ large all the time. It's to, it's to learn how to be internally safe. And this is true across, I mean, dimensions and levels that we can talk about for days, but um, creating the internal sovereignty first 
and then being able to show up in the world, however that is for you, in a way that's like fully authentic, making the difficult decisions right. of letting go of all the identities that, that made you up. And th- this is one of the one of the really beautiful gifts of getting out of the military is like that initial layer of like uniform off. For most people, it doesn't exist. They don't have a uniform off moment. For for us, you get to take the uniform off. It's like a, it's such a jarring experience mm-hmm. of then trying to navigate that. At least for me, now being able to learn how to navigate transitions of these these cycles of death and rebirth right. is 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 a gift because what what you're able to do then is go oh wait a minute there is no such thing as a rigid identity there's no such thing as me forever existing as this thing. I'm going to move on, transition. I'm going to expand, you know, whatever. And so that creating the inner safety is, is the first step. It's like the, it's like the rock bed that then gives you the ability to navigate more effectively. Because right. if you take things less personally, if, if things aren't trauma responses anymore and you know your patterns, you're aware of them, you start to rewire. You start to rewire challenges and then things don't seem as like tr- uh, uh, drastically terrible it's like oh that's interesting it's an interesting challenge let me take that differently this time right so i think that is one of the things that we strive to teach others and that with that you describing it in your own journey is like oh yeah of course like this is a universal experience of once if you really want freedom which is i, I remember i remember like being that last year in the military i was i was so sick of it. i was like get me the fuck out of here and I was a captain in the Marine Corps. So I was like trying to keep, trying to keep my, you know, keep it all together in the uniform. And then, and then, all right, I'm going to be free now. Like, come on, let me out. And that sensation, like, remember what that felt like when you were trapped, stuck in there. Right. And, and, you know, use that as your fuel to be not necessarily to like agitate you just to like, remember like what your heart really wanted when you were stuck. What does your heart really want when you're trapped hiding, like you're describing? Yeah. Trust that thing. You got to become safe with yourself first. Mm -hmm. And, and the way that, that we become safe with ourselves is by noticing places that we hide, Mm -hmm. asking ourselves, why, Mm -hmm. how did this start? Why am I hiding? What am I hiding from? How am I doing it? Whether it's cupcakes or whatever, you know, what's going on for me? What's, what's really going on. And then and then figure out what it is that I'm hiding from. What am I afraid of? What am I ashamed of? Mm-hmm. And then unraveling that and coming out a little bit more because it is, it's lots of layers, lots of layers. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to end it on that. Mm-hmm. Those, that, that last blurb sentence or multiple sentences were wise words of wisdom to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, Karen, thanks for coming on. This was great. Yeah. We, we could have easily gone for another hour and a half. <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks for coming on. The book comes out. Yeah. 20. Well, okay, cool. Tell us where people can find you, what they can find and what to look forward to. So my website is called Hideology, H-I-D-E-O-L-O-G-Y. Um, on there, I, I do some blogging. Uh, if people sign up for my newsletter, I will I talk about all things hiding, um, perfectionism, all kinds of ways of hiding, not just for being gay. 
And, um, and so, and I will also be talking about the book and, you know, my journey and my hope is to help people come out from hiding. That's, that's my goal. That's my purpose. That's my passion. I'm also starting a, um, I'll be starting a six week course on hiding. I'm going to try to do that uh, before I start getting really deep into the book, which is going to start at the end of this year. So I'm in this little bit of a break right now. Um, and so I want to do a course on coming cool. up from hiding and helping people with that. The calm before the storm. <laughs> yeah, well, I was in the calm before the storm in the calm, calm. And then I had my appendix rupture a month ago. And so yeah. I, I, um, I decided that there is no calm before the storm. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. And so I just need to get, I just need to get busy again and get back into it. And, and actually I feel very um, motivated and purposeful and inspired to do that. So yeah, just glad to be alive. <laughs> I, I love the phrase that I hear so often. Oh, I'll start this when things calm down. Yeah. <laughs> good luck with that. Sure busy. Yeah, I'm going to take a that. break. Yeah. Yeah. That's not been my life. Yeah. Well, Karen, again, thanks for coming on. This was a pleasure. This opened up. Uh, it allowed me to see a different part of the military that I've never even seen before. So this was great. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah. Same really for me. Conversation. Really great experience having you here. And, uh, Story, it's not very often told in the in the kind of veteran space. So we're happy to to share the message and uh, and help people explore. Like this is a, a complex area, and also there's a lot of really powerful stories of people learning how to evolve and change and and learn how to stop hiding. Thanks. Really appreciate you guys. <laughs>